doing, everybody? Good, good. We're waking up. I can hear it. I can hear it. We're, we're getting there. Uh, well, we're glad you could be here. Uh, again, we want to welcome you. If it's your first time here, we're glad you could be our guest today. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 4, we're jumping back into our series through the book of Ephesians. I think we're in Ephesians for the next five or six weeks or so. And then we have a summer series uh, looking at the prayers of the Psalms. So I'm really excited about that uh, for our theme as we pray today for soul care. The Psalms are so essential to what it means to pray and to care for your own soul spiritually. So I'm excited about that. Ephesians chapter 4, if you uh, want to follow along, we're going to be in verses 17 to 24. 17 to 24, hear the reading of God's word. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Amen, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, How People Change. How People Change. Let's pray before we dive into the text. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us life in your word. Where there's death and despair and destruction, where we've turned away from you, God, you come in and you speak life. And so I pray, Lord, for our hearts and our minds, our ears even, to be open to hear what you're saying to us today in the scriptures, that you may breathe on these dry bones life, life abundantly, life eternally. May you do it for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Australia is moving. Like, the continent Australia is moving. And that may not be surprising to some if you remember what it was like in middle school or high school science class when you realize that all continents are moving at some rate. But Australia, as a continent, is moving at, at the snail pace of about 2.7 inches a year. To the northeast in general, like that it's just slowly creeping along and obviously that's such a slow pace that you and I, we can't see that kind of movement with the naked eye, right? You can't stand out your, your back porch in Australia and just watch the continent move. It, it's so slow, you don't even notice. But the people who do notice are people who are using GPS system because the GPS system is based on, on the location of the continent. And as the continent moves, the GPS gets messed up. 
In fact, in 1994, they had to correct the GPS system in Australia, get this, by 650 feet. They hadn't updated it since the beginning, I think, and, and it had moved so much, everything was off. And, and for the average person who uses GPS, that wasn't a big deal, right? Your cell phone doesn't care that level of accuracy, and in fact, it's probably not even capable of that. But there are GPS systems that are used for other things, things like self-driving cars, where 600 feet on the road is a major difference or farmers who use very accurate uh, GPS systems to do their farming by you know, the high technology they have, all these things. And so they found out they had to kind of update it more regularly to make sure this was safe. And so they started updating it every 10 years or so, and then they realized this is, this is too much work. We need to create a whole nother system. And what they do, they came up with a whole new GPS system in Australia that automatically updates as the continent is moving. In other words, what happened is they began to expect change to happen. They began to expect that this is what we can anticipate. We are moving, right? I mean, that's just life. You can expect in your life that change is going to happen. There are few things in life that are predictable, but change is one of them. You, you are going to change. One minute you're one place, the next minute you're another place. One minute your life is going one way, the next minute your life is going another way. And, and so it may be all kinds of changes. Job changes, school changes, changes with your marriage, changes with relationships at work, changes all over your life, right? I mean, these are the kind of things that we just take for granted now. We, we know that things are going to change, but the question is, how do we change? Not just the, the circumstances in life, not, not all the things that are happening to us, but what about internally in us? How do we change? How do we go from being in one place in life and, and then moving to another place? How do we go from who we are to who we want to become? Because what God is calling us into is, is not just to believe something, but to become someone. You hear that? When, when God calls you to himself to have a relationship in Jesus, he's calling you not to just believe ideas about him, but to experience him in such a way that it radically changes your life. And so how does that change happen? Even if it's 2.7 inches at a time. How does it happen? So we're continuing our series uh, through Ephesians, like I said earlier. We've been calling this series on being the church, on being the church. And, and this whole book, really, Paul writes this letter to a young Ephesian church that he had helped start previously. And this church is, is trying to grasp and, and, and grapple with what does it mean to be the church? And the first half of the book is all about how, how to believe about that. What, what does it mean to be the church? And so it's, it's much more theoretical and theological, and, and he talks about these incredible metaphors and beautiful imagery of what it means to be the church. But then he turns the corner, and through this transition period that we walked through just the last couple weeks before Easter, now he's, he's completely giving his attention not to what it, it means to be the church, but what it means to, to do the church. Like, how do you go from just believing something to doing something. 
How do we go from being called to be with God to called to be different with God? That's what he's looking at. And so for the rest of the book, you're going to see uh, the first half of Ephesians, there, there weren't very many commands. It was, it was very high and, 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 and lifted up as far as the theology he's dealing with. And then he starts firing off. Okay, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. Here's what the new life looks like. And so we're going to look at marriage and relationships and your spiritual life and all kinds of things that Paul impacts. But before we get to that, this first paragraph that he deals with asks the question, how? How does it happen? How does God change us. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And first, we've got to take a look at our old life. And so if you're taking notes, the first point is the old life. Let's dive in together. Look at me at verse 17. He says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, I don't know about you. If you've been tracking through Ephesians, this is an odd opening statement. Because remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church that is majority Gentile. Think about that. He's saying, I want you to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Wait a minute. We're Gentiles. Well, what are you talking about? That, that's like, I don't want you to walk as the Americans do. Or if you live in Brazil, I don't want you to walk as the Brazilians do. Right? He, he's saying this to a Gentile church. I don't want you to walk like the Gentiles. And, and immediately you kind of back up. You're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And what he's saying is he's, he's using this term Gentiles, not in the ethnic sense, but in, in the religious and moral sense. And he unpacks this as we go through the book. But you see that he's, he's comparing and contrasting the Gentile religions with now their new relationship with God. And what you see in the Gentile religions is they often separate your spiritual life from your moral life. And what happened is, is basically, this was based on uh, the, the many gods that they worshipped and the idols that they worshipped. Even the gods that they worshipped didn't have integrity with their spiritual beliefs and their moral life. And so if you go back and you read some of these Gentile pagan religions, it, it reads like a tabloid. And it wasn't just the people who worshipped the gods. It was the gods themselves. Like, they, they were doing all kinds of crazy, sinful things, and no one had a problem with that at all because what you did spiritually and what you did morally, it, it didn't matter. These two things didn't collide. And what Paul is saying is you can't separate these things. I, I want you to live a life that, that has integrity and is, is consistent with the calling to which you've been called, as he says in the beginning of chapter 4. I, I want you to live a life that's transformed in Jesus. And notice what he says. No, notice how he describes it. His emphasis in describing this old way of life that they came from in the Gentile religions, he focuses on their mind and their heart. He says, listen to the phrase, futility of their minds, darkened understanding, ignorance, deceitful desires, right? Clearly, Paul is bringing out these phrases to say, there's something about your mind that changes you. There's something about the way you think and the way you feel and the way the internal things that are happening in you, it transforms you. And so what's happening in them is the evidence of that, 
right? It's what Paul would say later in, in Romans chapter 12, right? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But not only that, he, he focuses on their mind, but then he focuses on their hearts in verse 18. He says it's due to the hardness of their hearts. The Greek word there for hardness is fascinating to me. It's porosis. It's this word that means callousness or kind of a, a bony formation that would keep the joints from moving. If you got bad joints, maybe you know what I'm talking about. You, you feel the restriction. You feel the sense of, I can't move forward. I can't do what I want to do. I, there's this, this hard thing that's between me and what I want to do. He says, that's what happens in your heart. It's, it's the callousness of your heart that keeps you from change. In Mark chapter 3, uh, we find Jesus in the synagogue, and Jesus would often go to the synagogue and teach, and in this scene, he's, he's arriving at the synagogue to teach, but in the synagogue is a man with a disabled hand. And as he shows up, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are all kind of gathered there to watch Jesus because they're, they're always sitting in the background. They, they always want to catch Jesus doing something wrong. And since it's the Sabbath, and they see the man with the disabled hand, they're, they're thinking Jesus is going to heal this man, because that's what Jesus normally did. He would teach, and he would heal, and, and so they see this man that everybody knows, and they're waiting to pounce on Jesus. They're waiting, because they know if Jesus heals them on the Sabbath, they can point to their Sabbath laws that say you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and their interpretation of work was including healing, and they can get Jesus, Right? And so Jesus, of course, because he's God, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what little plot they have going. And Jesus flips the whole game on them. Instead of letting them kind of stir in this, Jesus decides, I'm just going to call the man up to the front, and we're going to deal with this in front of everybody. And so the man with the disabled hand walks up to the front, and Jesus asks them, this is what he says to the, to the whole crowd. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. See, Jesus, with his question, he, he's confronting their hearts in the moment because he knows the question they're asking is, is it lawful? And Jesus is saying, that's the wrong question. The question is, is it loving? Is it going to bring life? And when he says that to them, they get it because then it, the Bible says that they're just silent. Nothing. No words, no response, completely silent. And then Mark says that, that Jesus was grieved in his heart at their hardness of heart. Because their, their callous hearts wouldn't allow them to, to move forward in what God was calling them to do because they were so hard-hearted toward the man. And Jesus, when he sees this and he's grieved in his heart, it says he, he told the man to stretch out his hand and he healed him. But what I want to ask you is, why, why was he so grieved? It was because Jesus knew that the hardness of their hearts hindered them from change. It hindered them. See, this is what the Apostle Paul is warning the Ephesians about. He's saying that if, you're, if your heart is so hard, you're, you're not going to be able to move forward in the transformation God wants to do in your life. And how do you know that your heart is hard? Just like the Pharisees, it lacks love. It lacks love. 
I mean, think about this for a second. If Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor, then doesn't it make sense that the greatest sin would be that you would lack love? I mean, doesn't it make sense that if the greatest good you can do is to love God and to love your neighbor, then the greatest evil you can do, the greatest sin you can do, the greatest evidence of the hardness of your own heart is that somewhere you lack love. And it, it can be in all kinds of forms, right? I mean, this lack of love comes out of me, it comes out of you, it comes out in our own pride. In the Pharisees, it, it was them seeing themselves as, as superior in some way to these other folks, superior to Jesus, superior to the man with the hand, superior to all these people. And, and that's what happens in our own heart, right? The evidence of the hardness of our heart is, is in our superiority, in our pride that we see people with less resources and we think we're superior. We see people with less uh, education and we think we're superior. We meet people with different political opinions and convictions and we think we are superior. We talk to people who've got a past that looks different than ours and, and they've got struggles that are different than ours and, and we think we are superior. And here, here's the problem is our own pride and our own superiority complex, it, it makes us uh, hindered in our transformation because we don't believe we have to change. The lie of pride is I don't need to change because I'm better than you. I'm all right. I'm all right. And so the callousness keeps us from change, but it's not just with other people. It's, it's a callousness towards God. And, and usually this plays itself out in fear, not just pride. And what I mean by that is, is you at some point, you know, you, you got vulnerable with God. You, you let God into your life and you trusted God with something and, and it didn't work out and, and things didn't work the way you thought they were going to work and, and things got really hard and you walked through a really difficult time. And as you walk through that difficult time, you're, you're wondering, does God even love me? Does God even care about me? And fear begins to well up in you that I don't know if I can trust him anymore because of what happened in my past. And so now you, you let that go too long and callousness begins to build up and hardness begins to build up. And, and it's hard to get through that because all your past says you, you can't trust God. You, you, you got to fear it. You, you got to fear that this, this is not going to work out just like it didn't. And, and this is where you find yourself not able to change. Because if pride convinces you you don't need to change, fear will convince you that, that you're not able to change. That it, it doesn't work. And it's callousness. It's the, it's the futile thinking, as he's saying. And so how do you get past this pride, this fear? How do you move forward and change? Paul describes this process that he's going to unpack for the rest of the book, but he summarizes it right here for us in verse 20. So this is the second point, to put off and to put on. Look at verse 20, what he says. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Listen to what Paul is saying. He, he, he brings us into the classroom, if you will. He starts using this school language, this, this language of, of learning and growing, and, and it reminds them that 
that uh, their, their old way of life, of, of separating your spiritual life from your moral life, this, this separation of what you believe and what you live, that, that is not the way anymore. He's saying that's not how you learned Christ. And what he's saying is he's pointing them all the way back to their beginning. When they entered into this relationship with Jesus, he's saying there, there was this training, that there was this discipleship that happened in your life. And remember, Paul was part of this church plan, and, and surely Paul didn't just leave them to fend for themselves, right? He started this church, he leads them to Christ, and he starts to disciple them and train them. And the question is, what did he train them in? How did they learn Christ? To learn Christ is to grasp your new identity. The way Paul says it, he says, you, you, the old is gone, the new has come. And so what he's describing is, is this past reality of how God has worked in your life. It, it becomes this present process. And so the present, the present process is you put off the old self, you put on the new self. You put off and you put on. And again, in one sense, this has already happened, right? Right? He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who already have their faith in Jesus. And so in one sense, they've already put off their old life and they've already put on this new life in Jesus. And so what he's saying, this is great. He says, the way you started, this is how you grow. The, the way you began your relationship with Jesus, this is how you grow in Jesus. It's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. And what did you do to receive him? To receive him, you walked in repentance and faith, and, and that repentance and faith is the way you're going to walk in him. That repentance and faith, the putting off the old life and putting on the new life, that's how you're going to change. It's repentance and faith. And so change requires putting off, and putting on. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you may remember it from the Chronicles of Narnia series, and he, he writes this incredible picture, this beautiful picture of this process that Paul is describing. And uh, there's this young man named Eustace. And Eustace is a young boy who's uh, he, he's in this Narnia fantasy world, and part of his experience in the fantasy world is because of his greed, he becomes a dragon, so he goes from being this boy to this dragon. And Eustace is, is in this uh, experience and, and has pain and, and trouble and, and he's uncomfortable. And so he's looking for relief from the pain he's feeling. And so uh, he, he, in that moment, comes into contact with Aslan, who, if you know the story, Aslan is the Christ figure, this massive lion. And, and as he meets Aslan, uh, Aslan leads him to this pool of clean water that's refreshing and renewing. And when he comes to this pool of water, Aslan tells him before he goes in, he has to undress. And Eustace thinks it's kind of odd because, you know, he's a dragon. He has no clothes on. What are you talking about? Well, why do I need to undress? And then it hits him a dragon, like a snake, loses its skin. And so he realizes in order to go in the pool, he has to take a layer of his scales off. And so he starts to scratch himself, and he's scratching off these scales, and the scales are starting to fall, and the more he scratches, the more scales come down. And then he gets all the way to the, the end of that layer of scales, and he's about to go into the pool, and he realizes there's a whole nother layer of scales. And then he starts to scratch some more, and then he peels it off. And after that, he realizes there's a third layer. 
And he realizes this is not going to end. I can't scratch hard enough. I can't get deep enough. And so as he throws up his arms in despair, Aslan speaks to him and Aslan says this. He says, you have to let me take the skin off. You have to let me take the skin off. And so Eustace decides he's afraid of this massive lion, but, but he decides, you know what? There's no other way. And so he lets Aslan tear into his skin and, and this, you know, massive claws go in and they go deep. And the first tear, you know, it says he, it makes him feel like he's, he's going to die, like death is just around the corner. And sure enough, he tears and he peels and he gets all the scales off. And Eustace at that point is just laying there exhausted and Aslan picks him up and tosses him into the water and he begins to, to swim. And as Eustace swims around, he realizes he's been changed from a dragon back into a boy. He's been completely transformed. And it's this beautiful picture of how that process happens, because I love what C.S. Lewis is saying, that the process is painful, right? The process is painful. Sometimes uh, to, to undress ourselves of, of our old life and to put on a new life is a painful process. It, it's not an easy, uh, you know, just kind of walk in the park. I mean, sometimes it feels like God is tearing into your soul. Sometimes it feels like God is ripping you apart as he, he tears into the areas of your life that you can't even get to. And sometimes it feels like death is just around the corner as he peels away at layers of your old life, peels away at your selfishness and your greed, your arrogance, your worries, all your, all your self-righteousness, all the things that have happened and that are going on in your life. He, he tears away at those things and he's making you into somebody new, but man, it's painful. I don't know if you've ever been there and you, you've had God working in your life in such a way that, that you knew it was something that only God could do, but it was so hurtful in the process, you weren't sure if you were going to make it through. But here's the beauty of what he's saying. Paul's saying you put it off and, and it could be painful, but the joy of putting on, the joy of putting on is that much greater the joy of putting it on when you realize that you're putting on nothing less than Jesus himself. You're putting on the clothing that Jesus purchased for you. You're putting on his life, his life for you. And, and so what happens is in this, this juxtaposition, you're, you're being redefined. It's no longer who you were that defines you, but now it's who he is that defines you. Do you hear that? And so we get defined by his love. We get defined by his grace and his kindness, his gentleness, his joy, his peace. All that it is that is Jesus becomes us. The greatest joy is seeing that happen despite your worst efforts at the slowest pace that may not even be perceivable. I mean, it's almost invisible to the naked eye. But I'm here to tell you this morning, God is changing you in that. He's changing you from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. He's working in you. It feels like death, but he's bringing life. He's bringing transformation. In fact, he's transforming you into the very image of his son, Jesus himself. And what's amazing is, is we really need both. 
I mean, think about this. If, if Paul said only to put off, it, it would turn us into legalists. It would turn us into legalists because now all we're worried about is getting rid of all the bad things in our life. We're trying to put off these bad habits and put off this and put off that, and we want to improve ourselves and make things better. And, and so we just want to put off things that keep us from Jesus, but we never actually put on Jesus. You just put off and put off and put off, and you keep separating yourselves from all the bad people, and you don't realize who you are in Christ. But also, you can't just put on. You can't just claim the promises of Jesus and not put away the old life. What happens is you turn into a hypocrite, right? You keep your old life, and you put on this new life as a facade, and you never actually do the work of putting off the painful things that you are. And everybody knows. I mean, every, everybody's aware of it, but you're claiming something that's not true. And so Paul is saying you have to do both. You have to put off and put on. You have to put off your old way of life and put on a new way of life in Jesus. And between these two is this bridge and this is the third point, and we'll close. Being renewed, being renewed. Look at verse 23. Paul says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Notice that this, this new self, this new identity in Christ, he says it's created after the likeness of God. Paul is putting us all the way back into the garden. He's bringing in this Genesis language to, to remind us of what God said in the garden. What did he say? He said, it's, let us make mankind in our image after our own likeness. In other words, he's saying that this is what it's always been about, that when God designed this world from the beginning, he designed it for us to reflect him as his image bearers. And when we fell into sin, what happened is we no longer perfectly reflect his image. We, we are a marred image. And the whole story of the Bible... The whole story of the Bible is God bringing us back into that image bearing, that to, to bring us into the image of Jesus and make us more like him. And so what he's saying is really alluding to, even though you want to change, even though you want to see transformation, even more than that, God wants to see your transformation. God has planned this from the very beginning. God has been working to, to, to work in your life in such a way that it changes who you are. And so this world might be able to uh, you know, get us to verse 19. You know, there, there are people who are skilled in this, sociologists and psychologists and people who can analyze and research the problem with the human heart. We can get down to the nitty-gritty of what makes us struggle and how we, how we are, you know, this way because of our parents and our past and all these things, and, and those things are good and true, but they, all they can do is give you some advice, give you some steps, give you some helpful work to do, but no one in this world can get you to verse 23. To get you to verse 23, he says, be renewed. It's, it's the language of new creation. It's the language of a fresh start. It's, it's the language of something completely different. In fact, the word is passive. It, it means to literally be made new. It, it's something that happens to you. It's not something you do. It's something that happens to you from the outside. Paul is saying the only way this is going to happen is if God does it. If God shows up in your life to make you new, to breathe life where there's death, 
to breathe hope where there's despair, to breathe forgiveness where there's guilt, to bring honor where there's shame. This, this is only something God can do. Change can only happen with a renewed heart, with a renewed heart. In John chapter 3, uh, there's another man by the name of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night because he's probably concerned that if his friends see him coming to Jesus, he's going to get in trouble or he, he, they're going to think different of him. And because uh, Nicodemus was this religious leader, he was a Pharisee who was kind of one of the elite Pharisees is what we can gather from the story. He, he was somebody looked at highly and, and, and he probably had, you know, this incredible life of religious activity, of reading the Bible and praying and doing all the things you're supposed to do. And yet when Nicodemus comes in contact with Jesus, he realizes there's something different about Jesus. He realizes in his life that, you know, things are run by, by the rules and regulations and all the things I'm supposed to do, and, and I'm moral, and I'm upright, and, and all these things are working in my life. But when Jesus talks about God, he, he says he's his father. He talks about God in a, in a very different way, in an intimate way, in a personal way. And so there's something about Jesus that I have to know about. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus in the middle of the night to find out what's going on, and he says this to Jesus. He says, I know you're from God because no one can do what you do unless he was from God. That's, that's how he opens up with Jesus. And Jesus, in perfect Jesus fashion, he kind of ignores his comment because he knows why Nicodemus is there. He's not there to talk about miracles. He's not there to debate theology. He knows Nicodemus is there because there's something in him that hungers for a real relationship with God, a life that's really transformed. And so Jesus' response seems out of the blue. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Clearly, Nicodemus is confused by his response. So Nicodemus says, how can someone be born a second time? How can you go back into your mother's womb? Seems logical, right? How does this happen? What, what are you talking about being born again? And of course, Jesus is not talking about a physical birth, but he's using this metaphor for Nicodemus to see that what he is, is asking about, what he's talking about, this relationship with God, is something that happens not because of you. This is something that happens not from you, but it happens to you. He's saying, just like you were born from your mother, what did you contribute to that? Just ask your mother. You contributed nothing. You contributed nothing. And in the same way, you'll contribute nothing to this. You will be passive. This is going to happen to you. If God is going to work in your life, if you're going to be reborn and renewed and, and have a relationship with him that's alive and changing and transforming, it's going to be God's breath on you. It's going to transform you from him. And so he's saying, Nicodemus, be transformed. You can't do it, but he can do it. See, the gospel is good news of a transformation. The gospel doesn't make nice people. It makes new people. It's based on the resurrection itself. Jesus had to be transformed for us. Death to life, from grave to glory. Not, he not only died for us, he was raised for us. He was raised for, uh, with newness of life. He was raised with all power in his hands. He was raised with transformation on the horizon. And so we trust a Savior. We trust a Savior who was transformed in our place. 
Our relationship with God is rooted in his very resurrection. God is able to do what we can't do. You can't change yourself. You can't change rooted in your own strength. You can't change by your own fears and worries, your own discipline, your hopes, your dreams. You can't change on that level unless God changes you. God must change us. And so we trust him. We trust him with that change. Will you trust him today? As we close, I just want to ask you, will you trust him with whatever the transformation is that you're seeking? Whatever God has put on your heart to say, I really want this to be different. I want to live for God. I want to love him. I want to see these idols in my life or this habit in my life or this relationship in my life, whatever it may be. I want to see God change this. Will you trust him to change it? And the way it looks to trust him is to say, just like Paul said, I'm going to put off the old self and I'm going to put on the new self. I'm going to lay myself down like Eustace and say, God, this is my old life. Tear into me. Tear into me. Take off this old life and make me new. Take off this old self that, that I can't seem to beat and do it for me in the power of your spirit, in the grace of your son. Change me. Change me. Let's go to him together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in a sense you were eternally changed in order to save us. You took on a body. You took on human flesh. Existing for all eternity, you, you chose to limit yourself to time and space here on earth. And then, Lord, as you lived your life in perfect obedience, you, you came to be transformed from life to death and then from death to life. You, you've undergone so much transformation for us. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you lived perfectly for us, that you might now live in us and us live in you so that we now have the power to be transformed at your hand, at your grace in your time, in your ways. And so God, we pray you would do it. We pray your, your spirit would help us to put off and to put on. And as we put on our new identity in you, as we put on our new life in you, may we be filled with overflowing joy that God has done the impossible. God has done what we could never do. And we're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.